Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Welcome to episode 87. Thank you so much for all the feedback that we received over the week in response to our podcast paying tribute to Marlena Lieberg. I know there were a few people who didn't find out that we were making the podcast in time for a contribution. I really appreciate all the lovely sentiments that have been expressed about somebody very special. On the podcast today, we're going to be speaking with Rich Desteno. Now, this is an interview that I recorded a wee while back, actually, and then topical things kept happening. But we are getting to Rich now, and you may have very fond memories of Rich if you've been around a while, because you may remember those Desteno games way back when, in the DOS days, like Run for President, and there was a Blackjack game, and a whole bunch. We'll recap those in a minute. And recently, they had a bit of a revival for a while in the land of 32-bit iOS, Rich is one of those really interesting people. He's a lawyer by profession, but when he turns his mind to something, no matter what that something is, he appears to be able to do it. He taught himself coding because he found that there was no game that matched a particular need he had or a want that he had. And then now that he's retired and he's got some more time, he taught himself how to play music and record it too. Amazing stuff. He's our feature guest. We'll also be looking at some listener feedback and some other items a little bit later. Don't forget that this podcast is divided into chapters, like all the podcasts that Mosin Consulting produces, and so you can skip around if you have a compatible podcast app. If you're using iOS, I highly recommend Overcast. It is a fantastic app. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. If you're of a certain age, you will remember a series of exciting games that used to do the rounds in the blind community. And then they came back. I mean, after a long gap, they came back on our iPhones for a bit. Uh, The creator of those games has done so much more, and he's currently rocking out with a couple of albums. He's a name that's pretty well known in the blind community, and it's my real pleasure to talk to Rich Desteno. Welcome, Rich. Good to have you on the blind side. Great to be with you. Uh, Really enjoying... uh having our contact here and looking forward to a pleasant conversation. Well, me too. So you were born with some vision, right, which deteriorated over time. Yeah, I think, you know, in retrospect, I probably was legally blind, but my parents were uneducated Italian immigrants and they either didn't want to particularly face the issue or that terrible five-letter word and uh, I could see I had thick glasses and I could read print within maybe two inches away from my face, two or three inches. Um, I could never see the blackboard in school. Um, I was at I went to public schools and I only had sight in one eye. But as I got to be into my teens, around 14 or so, uh, that I had significant problems with repeated detached retina. And within, uh, I would say, maybe from age 14 to 16, just about all my sight was gone. I had a little light perception for another year or two, and that was about it. By by my senior year in high school, I was pretty much devoid of any usable sight. Yeah, that classic example of the American dream then, aren't you? Where people come to the United States for a better life, and then you come along and you go to law school and you're doing a lot with your life. Yeah, 
you know, my parents uh, were all in on the United States. They, they came here as kids themselves, and uh, the entire family uh, came over here uh, during, I guess, period when Italian immigration was at its peak. And uh, they worked hard. You know, they, they believed in hard work and you're going to succeed. And uh, my father was very successful as a custom tailor in New York. Uh, he met and uh, made suits for some of the most famous people in those days, entertainers, etc. And he made a good uh, career out of it. And uh, he brought a, they brought us up, four kids. I'm the youngest of four. Um, my other, uh, my siblings all have normal sight and no problem there, but they brought us up to be Americans and they wanted us to, uh, get education, education, education that was repeated over and over. And so we all bought into it. And what attracted you to the law? When I was a kid, I actually was, was more science oriented. I used to do a lot of experiments and I loved science and uh, I fully expected that I would pursue something in the realm of science. But once I lost all of my sight, I felt that the challenge of doing things science oriented was going to be more than doing something that was more word or concept oriented. So I shifted. I also was very interested in politics. And so I, I shifted my concentration once I got to college to government politics. And as I got to my junior and senior years in college, then I had to, I had to say what would be my next level because I, I really didn't feel that just having a bachelor's degree was going to be enough, especially for a blind person. So I, uh, I was encouraged by my my older brothers to give it a shot at law school. If it didn't work out, it didn't work out. And so I got into uh, law school in New York and, and it, it worked out. I, I, uh, I would say it was a huge challenge. It wasn't, uh, and no part of it was easy. I had to move to New York and live, live by myself with, a you know, my guide dog and travel to, to school and get readers and the whole thing that all blind students know. And uh, it was hard work, but I got through the three years. I did fairly well, and I got a job. So it worked out. What kind of era are we talking? We're talking before the, the, the big technology explosion, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Uh, I entered law school in 1973, and the big thing was to have a handheld cassette recorder. That was that was making it big. You could put it in your pocket and carry it around, and that's as high as the technology got at that time. So there was a lot of work involved because often you'd end up listening to the lecture twice because it was way too noisy for people to be, well, maybe even using a slate and stylus, but definitely using a Perkins Brailler to take notes in those lectures. Yeah, I didn't use a Brailler. I would get it by as well as I could with a slate and stylus. And then I would borrow notes from classmates who were generous enough to lend me their notes. And then what what I would do is... Uh, I, I had readers from the class, uh, the, New, the, New York, the New York Commission for the Blind uh, would pay for the readers, and uh, they would read their notes into the cassette as well as whatever I needed read. Actually, you know, I've always thought in all these years that have passed by that one of the greatest assets at that time 
was recordings for the blind. If you sent them two copies of your books early enough, they'd start recording them and they'd send you their big real five-inch reel tapes or I think it was five at that time, yeah. And uh, you could you could actually listen to the tapes and you didn't need everything read. But what I did need is the notes read. I needed some supplemental things read and it worked out between the tapes and the readers. And then, of course, once you graduate law school, there's actually accessing all of the legal written information that you need. I mean, man, we've come a long way, haven't we? Just being able to dial up tools like LexisNexis or whatever you need, and all this stuff Uh-oh. is at your fingertips. I, I, I think back how lucky, how lucky the young blind people are now. I mean, oh, the t- you could later in my career, I was able to, you know, make make uh, use of the uh, computer access to the law research, and it was a great, it was a great thing. And once the computers became really, I would say, in my job, it was around the late '80s that I actually got to start using talking computers. Uh, the internet didn't kick in till later uh, to get any kind of research done on the internet or do anything that you know. Rec- involved finding out case law or facts but just having the computer and being able to do my own briefs on the computer and and proofread them and change them and then print them out that 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 hit me in the late 80s and that was tremendous yeah see we sound like that monty python sketch about the four yorkshiremen you know we had it tough (laughs) right exactly but but you know it's good It, it goes to show that even though sometimes we hit an advocacy brick wall even now, and you see crazy legislation sometimes going by. We have actually made a bit of progress, and it's nice to just take stock and reflect on that. When I look at something like Bookshare now, and I go on there and I see the enormous amount of material that there is available, uh, I just drool at it. I mean, if I ever had anything like that in those days, and the... uh, we did mention the the uh, Lexus, the Nexus, Lexus, and all that. I mean, fortunately, I I did benefit from it in my later years of working. I've been retired about five years now. You know, in my second job as a as a federal administrative law judge, I I really uh, took great advantage of those things. But oh yeah, it, I, I mean, I, I feel really good for the young people now. It, it, they have great advantages, and who knows what will be in twenty, thirty, forty years, but. You know, it's an ever-changing technology. Tell me a bit more about what you did in the legal field. Uh, I was an attorney for the National Labor Relations Board, which is a a federal that basically uh, enforces a law that protects employees from um, being retaliated against for joining a union or being in a union. It also uh, limits the extent to which unions can pick it. They have to pick it within certain rules and lines. Uh, it limits their strike ability to what's permitted. Uh, employers and unions have to negotiate in good faith for contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I was right in the, right in the smack dab Ma- uh, Manhattan uh, fray there with the unions and the employers in the 70s and 80s and early 90s and it was a really really exciting active and challenging time i used to do trials involving uh alleged violations of the act and uh 
that was another thing. Trent, learning to do trials as a blind person was a <laughs> that was probably my biggest challenge in terms of uh, not having sight. But I enjoyed it. You know, I, I learned how to do it, and it worked out. You're Allo Guthrie's archetypal judge with the dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with the 27 8 by 10 color glossy photographs. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, how on earth did you find time during a career like that that's pretty full on to dabble in the whole tech side of things? Well, what happened was when it got to be uh, the late 80s, when I was, when the computer was becoming more accessible, I actually, I think I, I think we bought our first home computer in 1989, if I recall correctly. And I, at that time, w- was very, very fond of card games, especially blackjack. And I used to play with sighted assistants, uh, blackjack and casinos, uh, you know, when we go on vacation uh, from time to time, and my wife was sighted. Uh, and what would happen was I, I heard of these computer games that sighted people would play that were card games, and blackjack was one. And I thought, well, I wonder if I could learn enough programming to write a blackjack game that talked with synthetic speech and that uh, you know, blind people could play as well. First, of course, I was thinking that I could play it, but if I could play it, maybe other people would, would be interested. And so I, I said, I would, of course, it would, this would be in the evenings. I would be coming home. I'd have dinner and maybe by eight o'clock at night, I'd have some time to do other things if I wanted to. So I set about a project of learning the basic programming language enough to do what I wanted to do. So I got some books. Again, it was Recordings for the Blind that came through. Uh, I got some books from them on the basic programming language. And I'd spend hours every evening just about studying and studying and trying to figure out how to do this. And ultimately, that's when I first came out with the first game, which was uh, called Casino. And it was three or four card games that were you know, included in the, in the one package. Uh, and that led to a, a game called Atlantic City Blackjack, which was strictly a blackjack game, m- much more complex in terms of a blackjack game. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And a lot of people were doing something similar. I mean, there were even people writing entire screen readers who did what you yes. did. They had day jobs. I remember, for example, that- Flipper, which was a screen reader that I loved to use back in the DOS days, which was developed by a guy called Steve Smith. And he was a sighted guy and he developed it for his wife. And uh, if you wanted to get Flipper unlocked because it was it, it was in demo mode, unless you got it unlocked, you had to call him before he left for his oh. day job. I think he was a university <laughs> lecturer from memory, and um, you'd have to get him unlocked. So, so for me, you know, if I got a new computer, I'd have to be up at I think it was four thirty in the morning to try and unlock my Flipper, and you'd call him at home. Right. But, but there was a lot of that kind of pioneering stuff, enthusiasts doing all sorts of things. Larry Scootcon wrote A-Saw at that time. I remember that. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Amazing. And then, of course, the way that I found out about your games was through the bulletin boards. So I take it that you were also a BBS user? I wasn't much. I, I would dabble in it now and then. But what, what would happen was people who who I gave the games to, they, they, were, they had other contacts and 
there were some people who would get back to me and say, hey, you know, I'm on this bulletin board. Uh, Harry Hollingsworth at the time, who wrote a baseball game, uh, he and I became pretty good friends. He wrote it in basic, and we shared a lot of information. And I, I helped him to uh, compile his game so it could be played without basic loaded on the machine. And he was on various bulletin boards, and, and he passed the games along. And so it was sort of a, a chain reaction type of thing at that time. Yeah, and I remember dialing in with, well, initially a 2400. I think I think I had a 2400 board modem, the first overseas bulletin board I connected to. And then, of course, we ultimately got to uh, Will, Willie Wilson's Blinklink bulletin board in Pennsylvania, right. who was striding along at 9600 board. <laughs> Jumping ahead quite a bit, but you eventually got those ported to iOS, but I think it was for 32-bit iOS. Is that right? Uh, what happened was... Uh, after I, I did a flurry of games there in, in the late eighties, like 89, 90, uh, destination Mars run for president. Uh, I, I was, I just was getting, you know, really into it. I abandoned basic quickly and I went to C plus plus, which was a more, you know, complex language. And I, I learned that again with recordings for the blind materials. Th then the dot, you know, the DOS wave sort of passed as people got into Windows, and then in 2010, uh, you see all the years that passed in between. But in 2010, I decided since everyone was using Windows, that I was going to try to convert the games that so they would work in Windows, and it uh, it required it required me going actually it was C, I, my first C version. That then I had to go from C to C plus plus, and I had to rewrite a lot of the games and to make them usable in Windows. And then somebody told me that they they knew somebody who could who could take the games as they were and get them uh usable in iOS with some kind of DOS overlay. I don't I didn't know exactly how that worked. That was beyond my knowledge. So ultimately the exact games that were played in Windows were playable although not really that great for you know the the finger type of motions and taps but they were playable in ios for a while until ios got away from it and you know then they they no longer were playable and i actually like two years ago i actually was very close to entering into an agreement with with a person who was a very you know, comfortable iOS programmer, and it was Objective C is the language that you know a lot of people were using in um, iOS. I came very close to having an agreement where he would rewrite the code as much as was necessary to submit them to be put in uh, you know in iOS for mainly for use on iPhones by blind people, but in in the end, I didn't feel that the offer he was making accommodated the creative aspect of that. In other words, my destination, Mars, run for president, sounds like was another one, and then ultimately Tiny Zebra's Rock, which I wrote in 2010. Those were all creations of mine. You know, I didn't take a public domain game and just put it in like I did with the card games. I didn't just put them into uh, usable form. I was actually creating games, you know, and I just didn't think that his deal, the deal he 
accommodating that part of it, so I, I didn't do it. Run for President is my favourite game, being a political animal. And, I've, yeah, there is a lot of IP. There's a lot of intellectual property in there because it's got your kind of wits and your knowledge of the political process. And I remember thinking last year, actually, gee, I wish Rich would would do a new version of Run for President after the 2016 election to sort of accommodate some of the madness that has gone on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boy, I'd have a field day with Trump on this one. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the thing the thing is, the uh, and that absolutely is my favorite game, because I enjoyed those sarcastic or humorous comments I put into the news, uh, the, the evening news stuff. I, I enjoy that, and, this, and the, th- the things that would happen in the campaign. I enjoyed coming up with those things so much. And it, I think that game, more than anything, I had to really, really force myself to learn so many new techniques in C++ to do things that I wasn't doing before. And what what would happen was I'd be writing a game and I'd want to do a certain thing. Um, like I built in the recordings of the presidents and I and I built in the, you know, guess the capital of the states. And... What I wound up doing was I would go on these really geeky websites for programmers and hobbyist programmers, and I'd look up, hopefully using some keywords that would get me to what I wanted, I'd look up what kind of code, how, how do you write the code to achieve a certain thing that I wanted to do. And sometimes I'd spend hours on one little process in the game, but ultimately I found what I wanted, I did it, and I had, I felt good about it. And when it works, oh man, that's a great feeling. Because I, I I, at no point did I have a programmer showing me anything. Never. It was all like what I learned out of a book and then what I could find out on the internet and then trial and error. And that's a hard way to learn. Yeah, absolutely. As far as I can remember, the games were working on iOS until iOS 11 came out, and then they stopped 32-bit applications from running, and I think that's when we lost them. Do you think there's a chance that they will make a comeback in some form? I I don't exclude that. Um, it's always in the back of my mind, and um, you know, I, I, I will continue to entertain the possibility. If I can come up with maybe a young guy who's really good at it and he's, you know, he's looking for a fair deal, but you know, not to, not to really uh, make a killing on my, on, you know, on, on it. I might, I might be able to do that. I think that the only solution I think would be a young guy who's really bright, who's, you know, who knows how to program an iOS objective C or this other one they, uh, they have that's, that's come out. Uh, I forget the name now, but it's a new pro. It's Swift a new maybe. Program. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I even looked into that for a while because I was entertaining the possibility of doing it myself. Uh, but and and I wouldn't, I didn't shy away from learning the program. I was it was going to be Swift, but uh, the more I looked into it, the, the more I I didn't see how I could accomplish the visual aspect of the buttons and all that stuff without constantly having a sighted person check this, check that. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And I, I didn't want to I didn't want to do that, so I did I abandoned the idea of doing it myself. But if there's ever a solution to that, it's going to be a young guy who's interested in the idea, who's you know who, he can make a few bucks and still do something that he can learn from as well. 
And as well as all of this computer stuff that you were doing in your spare time, you're also a, a, a rockin' musician. And it sounds like you're doing a lot in retirement. So is this something that you always had a mind to do, to put out an album or two, and, and now retirement has made that possible? I, I have been writing songs since I was literally a kid. Uh, except in those days, I didn't keep really that much of a record of it. I, if I, ha- I had a little, you know, cassette recorder and I'd record some things. Maybe my sister had a piano, and that's how I first started. Uh, I really never learned how to play the piano that well, but I, I used to pick out the keys and come up with tunes. And then when when I was in college, after after my freshman year of college, is when I bought a a secondhand electric guitar. And I learned how to basic play basic guitar. Uh, I revisited it, okay, you know, periodically. I'd revisit the guitar, and then I put it down for years. I, I revisit the music thing, and I put it down. And what happened was, in 2006. Now, this is going to sound really weird, but this is really true. In 2006, the Stones came out with. Their album, I guess it it might have been their. I, I forgot what the name of it was, but it was, it was, uh, it was, it was an album they came out with after many years of no of nothing, and uh, I I listened to that because I've been I've been a Beatles and Stones fan more than anything in my life, and I said you know I I got to get serious. I can get serious and learn how to really play the guitar well, it, you know, rock style. If I if I apply myself the way I applied myself to the to the programming and to to my work and stuff, so I made a real commitment. I got a new electric guitar in 2006, and I and I went on. Of course, now this this brings in what we were talking about before. Now the wealth of information that's available on YouTube, lessons on how to play this and that, or this song and that song, techniques, the bar chords, and all this other stuff. I got immersed in that and i started to learn i was working full-time but i would do i'd come home and i would literally practice every night for an hour to two hours and this went on from 2006 until i retired in 2012 and then i said to myself now i really have to get into learning audacity which you know i'm sure you know is a multi-track open source free recorder on the on the computer and if I can learn Audacity and I can get, get back to writing songs, which I felt I did have an ability to do, I want to try to see if I can put something together and maybe at some point find some way to, to release this stuff. And the answer was when I, when I learned of CD Baby and what they do and how they have all these partners that they can release this stuff to that an individual could never do. You know, they're aggregators and they can do that. They have these agreements with these places like iTunes and Google Play and YouTube and all that. I could never achieve that. So when I saw what they do and I and I knew and I saw all these songs I was recording literally last August, which was um, from, let's see, 2013, 14, 15 and half of 16, seven, 16 and half of 17. Last August, I went on the copyright or uh, website, which was somewhat of a nightmare, but I managed to get through it. I sat there and copyrighted 120 songs. 
I put every title in and uh, that I wrote. I, all of them were written since I retired. And then you, you know, I had to upload the audio, so I <laughs> uploaded 120 songs, and I paid my fee, and I haven't heard from them yet. But once I did that, I felt comfortable, tr- you know, releasing the material. And so my first album came out last August, and my second one only a few days ago. That's really impressive. So you're still using Audacity? I'm using Audacity. I've learned a lot about it. I use it exclusively now for recording and mixing, yeah. Are you doing any MIDI at all, or is it just actual raw acoustic instruments and microphone, that kind of stuff? Uh, the acoustic is microphone. The electric, I plug in directly into, well, I plug into two pedals, and then the, the pedal plugs into the laptop. Sometimes I plug directly into the laptop. But uh, the microphone I use for the acoustic guitar, the vocals, and harmonica, uh, but the other things are plugged directly into the laptop. What's your genre? It sounds like it's on the, the, the harder rock side. I call it a blend of electric and acoustic. I still love acoustic as well. I, lo- I, like, the, I like the electric sound, I do. But I still like the acoustic, and you know, I know you're a Beatles fan, but I, I could go from something like Blackbird to something like you know Helter Skelter, <laughs> or the the Rolling Stones were like that too. I mean, you could go from Satisfaction or Sympathy to to the Devil uh, for the Devil to Angie or As Tears Go By, you know, and that's that's what I was brought up with. That's the stuff I love. I love the versatility of going from an electric song and the next cut being a soft acoustic, and that's what I do. That's what I've done in both albums. I've gone. You know, I've got a couple, maybe electric, and then I put an acoustic in there. And and that that kind of uh, versatility and variety is what I find most exciting to do. Because if I just did all one, you know, one limited genre, all hard rock, I would I would get bored. It wouldn't it wouldn't be interesting anymore. But I pick up the acoustic. I'll I'll do something there, and I'll write something like that. And then I'll say, well, let me get let me get a little harder again, and I'll go back to the electric. Uh, good for you. There's a wonderful soliloquy I heard once from Billy Joel, who comes from your part of the world, uh, and uh, he made the comment about how would the Beatles get on in today's radio format where everything's so compartmentalized and pigeonholed, and, you know, are they CHR, are they country? Yeah, you know, exactly. Because I mean, they did everything. And, uh, and that's, exactly. the, that's the wonderful thing about the talent of the Beatles, isn't it? There's just, there's just something for everybody in there. The Beatles and I and the Stones did that. You know, there were there were some bands that. Well, of course, now as time went on, you know, the uh, the metal stuff. It's all hard stuff, and, and uh, some of the harder rock bands. You know, they they didn't do really much acoustic anymore, and it's a shame because a lot of them are good musicians. They 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 could be versatile and, and do different things, uh, and I still I'm telling you to this day, I still will will put on especially when i'm working out here in my house down in the basement i will put on a cd of all those great old beatles and stone songs and i'll still enjoy them as much as the first time i heard them and you know again it's that versatility i mean especially in the day of brian jones when he was when he was playing with the stones he was a tremendous musician he could play a lot of different things and you'd hear that stuff in the songs um, and the, and the Beatles, I mean, you know, Paul McCartney could play uh, something soft and he could play something hard. And it, it, it was just a very, very, 
refreshing thing to know that you could hear all that different talent come come out. Uh, and again, uh, I was always impressed by the writing. You know, artists that wrote their own things, and that's that's what I wanted to do. I always wanted to be a songwriter, and I don't consider myself a a great musician. My vocals are passable, but certainly not anything you know uh, uh, really really sophisticated. But I wanted to have a, a way to get my songs out that I wrote. My my my, my um, main thing is the writing of songs. So, and the other thing is, you know, when when you can play uh, the songs and you can you have something like Audacity to multi-track and mix, you control the final product, and that's fantastic. I wouldn't want to take all this, give it to somebody else who's going to make it into something different. Not what I want. Not to say what I want. Want not not to sound like what I want. So I can control everything in this whole process. I can mix it, I can produce it, I can have in the end what I want and release that. You know, win, lose, or draw, it, that's secondary, really. I can have the product that I want exactly the way I want it out in the world. Are you getting some reaction to the material now that it's out there? I'm getting, you know, this is an interesting thing. Um, I've learned a lot about the business now because um, CD Baby gives you a lot of guidance for th- um you know how to market and stuff like that and the thing now apparently is the streaming audio that's the thing now because the sales are uh, is a secondary thing and since i am not going to go out and play you know i'm not going to go on, on on gigs i'm not going to go on tour i'm not going to play publicly it's not my thing um i don't have that extra you know uh push behind uh, behind the stuff but spotify which is the biggest streaming service right now around the world they they have a service for the for artists and uh, which I take take advantage of, and you can go on and you can look up. They'll show you everywhere any of your tracks have been streamed in the world, how many, and they'll do it on a daily or monthly basis. And I've had a lot of fun looking at that because while it's not been a huge amount, I've seen people from Taiwan, Singapore. Uh, Mexico, the Philippines, Great Britain's a pretty big one, the United States. And it's just fun to see where people are streaming these songs and, and you know, when it goes up, when it goes down. And they make a big point on CD Baby that the key is if you get on a playlist. Because once you get on a playlist, your song's going to be streamed a lot. Uh, I think I think I was on one playlist with one of my songs on the first album because in December there was a spike up in the streaming. But, um, you know, quite frankly, I'm not going to make any significant amount of money at this. And I'm not going to and I don't really need to because I do have a my pension's going to take care of me. But I am just enjoying the idea that it's out in the world and people all over the world are at least to some extent hearing what I put out there. I'm interested in your whole work ethic because it's it's wonderful to hear you just decided that. If you couldn't find a blackjack game that you could play, you would write one and you would learn how to write one, even though you'd never written a line of code in your life before. And then more stuff came from that. And similarly with the music, you just decided if if you, you, you were confident in yourself that if you took the time to learn it, you would learn it. And now you got a couple of albums out. 
Where does that come from? That's a, that's a rarity that you're so tenacious about whatever you want to achieve. Well, in, in, although my parents were not educated themselves very much, very you know they didn't even finish high school or even get to high school, but um, they they had a work ethic and they believed they instilled in all four of us because my my three siblings have a, a lot of advanced degrees and two of my brothers are dentists, so. They, we were, we were instilled with number one the value of education that was considered more important than just about anything in our household, the value of education and the value of hard work and the idea that if you want to work hard, don't believe in magic, don't think things are going to be handed to you, don't don't whine and complain that you're not getting stuff when you are not working hard enough to get it. Or you're not achieving, you know. Don't don't look at your neighbor who's, uh, you know, got a really good job, making a lot of money, uh, and you're not. And you're saying, but it, but on the, at the same time, you're not really working toward that goal either. So, I always believe that I I was given pretty good intelligence. I'm not a genius by any means. I've been given pretty good intelligence. I've been given a strong uh, you know, work ethic and a belief that hard work and and reasonable application of your brain is going to usually result in something productive. And that's the way I've, you know, that's the way I've operated and it's worked out. And when I came down to this music thing, I've gone in whole hog. I mean, I write almost every day. I write songs and I write about all kinds of stuff. I write about what's going on politically. I'll, I'll write about, uh, you know, the, just human foibles. I'll write about something. I'll write humorous songs too. There's a there's a humorous one in the first album and the second album, and you know it's a it's a mixed bag. But I learned, and I heard Paul McCartney say this once. He said in an interview. When you first start out, you're writing all about boyfriend and girlfriend, and and you'll sign as many autographs as anybody wants, and you, that's, you're just thrilled with the whole idea. Yeah, my girlfriend this, my boyfriend that. And he says later on, you know, you don't necessarily think everyone has a right to ask you for an autograph, or you don't want to write about boyfriend, girlfriend anymore. And I remember John Lennon saying when they broke up, he said uh, – well, they said, why did you break up? You had such a great thing going. He says, well, you get stale, you get tired, the same riffs, the same people, you know, the same things. If, you, if you're if you on your own, you can get different musicians and you can get different things going. So, you know, it's always that, that mixed bag of uh, where, where do you go next with your material? And so I always try to explore a new subject to write about and once you can do that you know you you the material is endless if you can do it i take it though despite that strong personal responsibility and work ethic that given your background in the law you're also a huge fan for society taking its responsibility to be accessible and uh, and 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 that equal opportunity has to exist Absolutely. I mean, I, I could tell you battles I've had over the years and, uh, you know, the, the era of the 70s, it was just beginning that there was in this country, the United States, uh, 
there was what they call the Rehabilitation Act was passed. And that wrote into federal law some accommodations. Reasonable accommodations had to be made. That's the first time that it was codified that you had to do something that was reasonable to give accommodations. And I, I, I brought, when that was passed, that law, I went up to the head of my office. I was a new attorney, and I, you know, I, I, I could see that I would have to have some accommodations, or at least some readers and things in the job. And, I, and for, fortunately, she was a forward-thinking woman who ran the office. And I said, uh, you may, I don't know if you're aware of this law, the Rehabilitation Act, and I gave her the materials. And, you know, and she was open to it, and she was responsive. She called Washington, and everybody got involved uh, you know, with this whole thing. And as time went on, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm always, uh, always aware uh, when I come across a situation where uh, you know, there wasn't a, the correct accommodation being done, I would make a major issue out of it, and I still do to this day. It's a fascinating thing that that you raise because I think a lot of people don't and there are others who resent the people who do. And I remember Kenneth Jernigan making a comment that has always resonated with me. He describes people who benefit from the advocacy but who don't actually join in on the advocacy themselves as being parasites and I fully agree with that. Yeah, there's, there's this principle, uh, you know, I was I was in labor law, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, that was the first, teen, first 18 years of my career. And there was this principle in labor law where someone worked at a union job, but they refused to pay dues or to support the union any, in any way. Mm. Yet, they were benefiting from the higher wages, from the time off, from the medical coverage. They were benefiting in every way from the fact that the union was there. And so what were they called? They were called – they had a name in the law. It was called free riders. And, and these people were looked uh, looked upon you know, with a, a lot of disdain because they were free riders. And in fact uh, – this is sort of you know something that permeates a lot of our society. There are people who say, "Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that." There's people want to do that, yet they'll benefit from it. They're not going to say, "No, I decline the benefits." No, no, they're not. No, they're not. Yep. Uh, now, now you put the Edgar Winter group in my head. It's going to be stuck in you know the old "come on and take a free ride" thing. Exactly. That's a good song. Look, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Can you just tell us again, how do people check in to your albums and uh, and take a listen to what you're doing? Well, anyone who, ha who has a streaming service like Spotify or Amazon Digital Music or Apple Music, you can, you can uh, look up Cracking the Shell. That's my first album. Second album is Up Elevator. And my last name is spelled D-E-S-T-E-N-O. You can, if you put that in the search box with "Cracking the Shell" or with uh, "Up Elevator," you'll you'll come up with the album and each of the individual songs. You could stream the individual songs or the whole album. Uh, if you want to go to the other level and purchase it, uh, iTunes has it, uh, Google Play. Amazon Music, all these places have it as digital downloads. You could download it from iPhone, uh, from iTunes to your phone or your computer, and I think it's nine ninety nine at some places and nine forty nine at some places for each album. 
How cool would it be to have a high-quality wireless audio system in your home that you can build up over time as finances allow? Whether it's a big surround sound system for your living room or a small speaker for the home office, Sonos has you covered. But Sonos products aren't cheap, so whether you want to do your research before investing in a new platform or you've just taken the plunge and want to ensure you're making the most of your investment, you need Sonosthesia, the definitive guide to Sonos from a blindness perspective. Sonosthesia is an ebook packed with information about the different products in the Sonos range, all the ways you can use Sonos, and some pretty cool advanced tips. Pick up a copy of Sonosthesia today and get on track to taking your listening to the next level. Sonosthesia, available from the Mosin Consulting Store at www.mosin.org. That's www.mosen.org. Let's have a look at some listener comments now, which have been building up for a couple of weeks. And here's one from Kevin Russell in response to the episode that we did on the Daily Fiber Premium Podcast. And if you've been withholding from subscribing, because you took at face value what I said about the Victory to Stream not supporting premium feeds, then I have got good news for you. Maybe I've got good news for me. You might be willing to hand over your credit card for $5 a month or use PayPal now, because Kevin Russell writes in from the UK and he says this, you mentioned on the latest edition of The Blind Side that it isn't possible to import a protected feed to the Victory to Stream. Actually, it is. I know this because I've done it. He then says, here's how. That's a very American thing, isn't it? Here's how. You need to download the Humanware Companion software from the Stream Support pages on their site, says Kevin. This is a Windows application. There isn't a version for Apple Macs. Once installed, you need to make sure that your Stream SD card is connected to your PC as the Companion software needs to access the SD card. Once running... Select the podcast feed exporter option from the tools menu. You can use Alt-L to get to the tools menu and then arrow down to get to the export option. In there, you can paste the private feed into the edit field, tab once and press the export button. It creates a file in the root of the SD card called exported.feeds.xml. That's stage one done. You then need to put the SD card back into the stream power up the stream and select the podcast's online bookshelf. From there, press key 7 to go into the menus option. In fact, you need to press key 7 four times to go into the podcast options. Once there, press key 8 once to go to the import podcast feed option and press the hash key, the stream's enter key, to import the private feed from the feed file on the SD card created earlier. Job done! Exclamation mark. Thank you, Kevin. I hope that that inspires people who maybe didn't want to subscribe if they couldn't hear the podcast on the stream to give it a go. After that, it's timely for me to mention that we're always looking at ways to add value, additional value to the Daily Fiber Premium feed. And here is one way that we hope to be able to do it. You'll be aware that WWDC is coming up on the 4th of June US time. And as per usual, we will be doing a blindside special right after WWDC. But for Daily Fiber premium customers only, that is to say customers who are paying the $5 a month to subscribe to the Daily Fiber premium feed, we will be sending out to all subscribers a link to a live stream 
of the recording of that blindside episode. So not only do you get to go behind the scenes of a recording of the Blindside podcast, but you will also be able to hear a stream right away after WWDC that recaps what's going on and gives you all the analysis. All you have to do to avail yourself of that is to subscribe to the Daily Fiber Premium Podcast. And thanks, Kevin, for the very clear instructions about how stream users can join the party. Now let's go to Newcastle in Ontario in Canada and say hi to Bob Fullis. And he says, hello, Jonathan. I'm a relatively new fan of yours. Well, thank you. And greatly appreciative of all that you do for the blind community. I'm often tempted to join the conversation on so many matters which resonate with me as a long-term guide dog user, a student of Braille occurring late in life, and many other issues such as the B word and how it's sometimes used and or avoided. However, I tend to shamefully keep a low profile and feed from the willingness of others to join the conversation. I live in a small community approximately 90 kilometers east of Toronto, and I wanted to share an article which appeared in the Toronto Daily Star today, May the 9th, which I thought your listeners would find interesting. TTC, by the way, says Bob, stands for Toronto Transit Commission. And here's the article that Bob sent. We didn't run this last week because of our special tribute to Marlena. TTC makes it easy to get a place to sit. Buttons are available to make transit seating even more accessible. The TTC is offering a solution for when commuters sitting on a crowded bus or train aren't aware that another passenger needs a seat. It's rolling out big blue buttons with the words, please offer me a seat. The objective is to allow people to self-identify their need for a seat, TTC spokesperson Stuart Green said Tuesday. People have disabilities that are both visible and invisible. Sometimes people have a temporary need for a seat if they just had surgery. The TTC's Advisory Committee on Accessible Transport worked to bring the concept an import from New York and London, to fruition. The trouble is that it's hard sometimes to tell who may need a seat, Green said. Complicating it further is that some passengers who need to sit don't want to inconvenience anyone by asking. So that's the gist of the article. Thanks very much for that, Bob. And I guess, um, hmm, how do you feel about having a big blue button on you, sort of asking for a seat? It it, it sort of makes you stand out, but perhaps some people who genuinely need the seat for medical or other disability reasons may be comfortable with doing that because otherwise it just makes the bus ride too difficult. Here's John Gerd, who says one last point on this issue that has not been mentioned. Although the inner ear mechanism plays the main part regarding maintaining a sense of balance, anyone with vision also uses their sight to keep a sense of equilibrium. For this reason, many people who lose their sight constantly feel as though they are going to fall. This can persist for a very long time in a diminished form and can also be a reason for some blind people needing an anchor on moving transport and or feeling safer sitting down. Hi, Jonathan. This is Debbie Armstrong from California. A comment on UEB. I do read a lot of hard copy Braille magazines, and when I first was forced to read my magazines in UEB, I was pitching a fit. 
But then I heard a tip, use your screen reader to improve your UEB skills. It's really simple. If you have a Braille display, you basically try to read everything in Braille, and then when you don't understand what it just said, you use the screen reader to cheat and let speech read back to you. So every day I spend, oh, about 15 minutes reading something in Braille, UEB, and when I don't understand something, I cheat and let the speech read back to me what I missed. This is really helping improve my fluency with UEB, especially when I'm reading computer magazines. Thanks very much, Debbie. Yes, some of those symbols can catch you outright. It took me a while to memorize what the new hashtag symbol is, so... That's a really great tip. Thank you for that. Here is Andrew Adolfson, and he says, Hello, Jonathan. This is Andrew. I wanted to comment on your podcast and tell you what a wonderful job you were doing. Thanks, Andrew. I just have a quick question. Have you had to get a case for your IREC glasses? I mean, did your glasses come in a hard plastic case, or did they come in a soft drawstring bag? I've gone through so many IREC glasses that I can't remember. The current glasses I have are the Austria ones, and the case is a soft drawstring bag. I feel that the bag is very thin and would not protect the glasses from drop. Not to say that it won't happen, but I would like something more protective. You know the saying, better safe than sorry, right? Do you have any suggestions? Um, I don't actually, Andrew. I got the glasses, the Austria glasses that have the drawstring bag and well so far so good. Sometimes I carry the glasses around in a suit pocket, in a in a suit pants pocket and they seem to take in pretty nicely there and then I can just whip the glasses out when I need them. I haven't broken them yet and I hope I'm not jinxing myself. I hope you're not jinxing me Andrew. If I break my Ira glasses in the next week I can just sue you right? <laughs> I suppose that you could just get any glass case could you? They're pretty standard-looking glasses, I think. So you could go to any place that sells harder glass cases. And maybe there's a bit more bulk than your average glasses because of the stuff that protrudes. So this is a good one to open up. And if you have any suggestions on this, if you have found the drawstring bag that comes with the glasses, just not protective enough for your liking, what have you done instead? So let me give you the contact information because I haven't in this whole episode. You can drop us an email And in that email, you can do what Debbie did and attach an audio clip to it, record using maybe your voice memos app or something like that, and just attach it to theblindside at mosin.org. That's theblindside at mosin.org. Or you can also just write an email down in the good old-fashioned way, and I'll read them back, as I've done with some of our listener contributions in this episode. We also have a phone number. That is 719-270-5114. You can leave a message that way for inclusion on the podcast as well, 719-270-5114. And since we seem to be running towards the end of the current conversations that have been dominating the podcast episode so much over the last little while, I have a couple to throw in, which I hope will get you talking. Please feel free to share your thoughts. I'd like to know, as we get closer to the big reveal of iOS 12, tvOS, Watch OS and for that matter Mac OS, what would you like to see, either accessibility related or not, in the next series of Apple software updates? There is word out that there may not be as many new features in them because Apple is supposedly concentrating on fixing bugs and rough edges. 
which I for one would be delighted about, on the one hand. I mean, on the other hand, it means that I won't have as much to tell you about in um, iOS 12 without the eye. So, you know, what would you like to see? both in voiceover and in just general features in iOS 12. What is important to you? I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Email me, theblindside at mosin.org. Call me, 719-270-5114. And here's another topic that I've been keeping for a wee while until all the hubbub over the other topics we've been running has sort of run their natural course. Here's an email from Marissa. And she sent this in a while ago, and I thought, oh, I'll save this one and bring it out at the right time. And I think the right time is about now uh, to get you talking. She asks this question. What are your thoughts on training centers that require partially sighted individuals to use sleep shades? Beneficial or not? Well, I'm not going to offer a view on this. (laughs) I will try and uh, outline the pros and cons. And I think there might be some people who are willing to take this one up and tell us what they think. This is an NFB position, isn't it? So the NFB and those centers that are influenced by the National Federation of the Blind in the States say that if you use your vision during blindness-related rehabilitation training, it detracts from you learning the skills of blindness because vision is such a dominant sense that if you have it, you will depend on it. And so they say that putting you under blindfold using the sleep shades is the best way to hone those important blindness skills. So if you have a prognosis that causes your vision to deteriorate over time or something happens or maybe the lighting isn't good where you are, you're not stuck because you've got good blindness skills. Others say, look, if you're low vision, you're low vision and you're quite entitled to use those low vision skills. Rehab systems should accommodate various degrees of blindness. And if you've got some vision, what on earth is the harm in using it? What do you think? Would love to hear your views. The blind side at mosin.org or 719-270-5114. That's where we wrap it up for this week. Thank you so much for your company. We'll look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.